kind of a skeleton crew today. When I was doing youth ministry, I always liked skeleton crew days because it always meant to me that those who were there were going to get something really special that other people didn't get. So feel that way uh, for you today. Think with me back to where we were a little bit as we've thought our way through some of the texts that we've been working on in Matthew chapter 16. Remember that during Jesus' earthly ministry, he made a number of very, uh, what we could say are bold moves, things that he did very intentionally, one of those being to take his group of good Jewish boys out of their comfort zone up to Sin City, Caesarea Philippi, into the heart of paganism and bring them there where he posed that question to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And as Jesus wraps up that moment, he makes what we might call a prediction. Maybe we'd term it better a proclamation. He said, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Quite a statement. Turn with me, if you would, to the very first verse of Matthew chapter 17, because Matthew in his gospel makes a point of connecting the story that just concluded in Matthew 16, even with that proclamation to the beginning of Matthew 17. Verse 1 says, then after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, any guesses about a high mountain in the region of Caesarea Philippi? Uh Uh-oh, got to work. Go, go. Help me out, Robert. What am I going to need? Oh, Robert left. Rick, do you know what's going on? Is my PowerPoint started? Ooh. Okay, I need to go to slide 34. Yeah. Can you get me down there? That'll take me a while doing it this way. This is where we were. Yep. (laughs) That was fun. That was fast. All right, here we are. There's the mountain. There's Caesarea. Any guesses? Uh, Yeah, there is sort of a big mountain around there that we might uh, look at. There's Mount Hermon. It is the top of it about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee here. And really, Mount Hermon is more like what we would think of as a mountain range. It's really a whole series of mountain peaks. This is goes clear on up into Lebanon with all of the range that's there. And so Mount Hermon is a, is a big mountain. Now it stands 9,166 feet above sea level. And just by way of comparison, I think it might be nice to look at Sacagawea Peak right here in the Gallatin Valley, 9,650 feet above sea level, almost the same height in elevation. But I want to help you make a quick discovery because if you compare these two mountains, um, there's something pretty cool about it. Now, here's the top of Sacagawea Peak. This is Andrea and me up there. And uh, here's looking down in the Gallatin Valley from the top of Sacagawea. Pretty cool view if you've been up there. If you haven't, it's a great hike. 
Here's the view from the top of Mount Hermon. No, I have not been there, but thanks to Google, I get to grab a picture like this. What a neat thing that we have. If you're looking in the distance to the west, you're seeing the Mediterranean Sea out here. You can see vaguely, it's a little easier on my computer, but the coastline in here. So big mountain here, but the discovery I want you to make is this. Gallatin Valley floor sits about, depending on where you're at, 5,000 feet above sea level and making the difference to the top if you're looking at 4,500 square feet or 4,500 feet, there we go. It's about a 5,000 foot difference. Do you know where I'm going to this? Do you know what the height of the valley floor is down by the city of Dan? 604 feet above sea level making the difference to the top of Hermon about 8,500 feet. So if you just stack those mountains right next to each other, um, Mount Hermon looks about that much bigger than Sacagawea, okay? It's a big mountain, and I want you to have a sense of that as we begin this story because it, it just starts out after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. Yeah, no duh. It's a big mountain that's there, and we don't know where exactly on the mountain this took place, but somewhere up there on that mountain would be the scene of this story. Now, let me read it for you, the text, and uh, then we'll go back and look at it in more detail. We already read verse 1. We'll pick it up in verse 2. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. We'll stop there. What I want to do right now is to tell you this story Again, but what I'd like to do is just to help you think your way through the story a little bit. Imagine your way through the story, if you will. What's going on here? What's happening in this text? So I'm going to just try to fill in a little bit of imaginative detail for you for a minute. So think your way through this with me in your imagination. You're tired from a long hike. I've got a couple of sore muscles. Your left knee is aching. You're sitting on the ground with your brother and Peter. And Jesus is just over there under that tree praying. You know, the air is fresh and cool. You can smell that sweet smell of trees and flowers, grasses. Jesus can pray for a long time. You remember multiple nights when Jesus prayed all night long. Some significant times. 
Nobody else is around. It's quiet. The wind rustles the trees a little. Now and then a bird sings. It's peaceful. The three of you don't talk very loudly, just in low voices. You've done some praying as well, but you have finished. Uh, you don't seem to have that stamina for prayer that Jesus somehow has, or maybe it's the relationship with the Father that he has that drives him on in prayer. You've watched the land below you turning from golden and green in the late evening sun to a softer, more subdued hue as the sun begins to set. Sunsets are beautiful from high up on Mount Hermon. You can look off to the west, see the sun sinking into the Mediterranean. To the south, you have the coastline where the Mediterranean meets the land. It stretches away from you. You can see tiny fields down below, the gray ribbon of the Jordan River snaking its way all the way down to the Sea of Galilee, where your home is, Capernaum, there up on the right hand near shore. Kind of looks like a cool gray puddle as the sun sinks down. The light is fading more and more, and you strain your eyes, but really are unable to see much more below you, and your gaze begins to shift up to above you as the stars begin to come out, and you see the glories of the heavens over you. As you gaze up, your eyes are getting heavy. All three of you are feeling sleep coming on. Jesus is showing no signs of letting up. Looks like you'd better be ready to settle in for the night. You tuck your cloak around you. The night air is getting cool and put your hands inside. Close your eyes. Now, the next thing you know, it's getting lighter. But not lighter like the gray light of dawn, but lighter like the intense light of a lantern. No, like the sun itself were blazing just a few feet away or like a lightning bolt from heaven was frozen in midair right over there, right where Jesus is. And as you squint at the light, your eyes are tearing up at the intensity of it. You realize that the light is shining not on Jesus, but from Jesus. His face is like the sun. His clothes are brilliant white, like lightning. And suddenly something new is happening. More brilliance appearing next to Jesus. And in the midst of this glorious splendor are two men. And now there is sound. They're speaking with Jesus, not as strangers, but as friends. There's no time to think. If you could, you wouldn't believe your ears. For the two men speaking with Jesus are Moses and Elijah. Moses, the man to whom God called from the burning bush, the man who led Israel out of Egypt and who was used by God to send the ten awesome plagues on the Egyptians. Moses. The man who went up Mount Sinai when the mountain trembled and the cloud came down 
And the people shook with fear and cried out and said, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses, the man who spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And when he came down from the mountain, whose face shone with such brilliance that he had to put a veil over it to hide his face. Moses, the prophet of God. And Elijah, the prophet who alone on Mount Carmel, not far from here, confronted the 400 prophets of Baal, called down fire from heaven to consume the offering. Elijah, the prophet who outran the chariot of King Ahab. Elijah, who prayed that it would not rain on the land and God withheld rain for three years. Elijah, the prophet who raised the widow's son from the dead. Elijah, the prophet who never died, but was ushered straight to heaven in a chariot of fire. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And you can hear and understand their words. They're talking about Jesus soon going to Jerusalem, there to fulfill some purpose of departing, even dying. You and your two companions are by this time as awake as you've ever been in your life, and yet feeling like you're living in a dream because what's happening in, in front of you feels more like a dream than reality, and yet it is reality. And now, Moses and Elijah are worshiping Jesus as they bid farewell. They're leaving. You catch movement out of the corner of your eye, and you realize that Peter's about to say something, and you can see this awesome terror on his face, the same look that you must have yourself, and you feel inside like, not the time, not the time, and Peter blurts out, Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Like, let's not let this end, right? It's good for us. Let me put up three shelters, and you feel in your head like blurting out, Peter, you idiot, shut up. But it doesn't matter. Jesus, Moses, Elijah, they're not paying attention to Peter. Uh, Moses and Elijah are departing, and an enormous cloud is descending on you with speed. You know how there are moments in your life when you can think a whole paragraph in the space of a half a second? Like when you were a kid, you fell out of a tree and you could think your whole life before you hit the ground or you're coming into an intersection and a car is coming the other way and doesn't stop at the red light and you slam on the brakes. And between the time of that and the collision, you've got a whole paragraph there. It's kind of like this as this huge cloud comes on you right now. This is no ordinary cloud, damp and gray, soft and silent and lifeless. No, this is the cloud that descended on Mount Sinai in fire. This is the cloud of God's glory, His visible presence on earth. This is the cloud out of which God spoke to Moses when all the Israelites trembled with fear. This is the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle and later the temple so that even the priests could not enter it. This is the cloud that shook Ezekiel to his core. He said, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal 
And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, and they did not turn as they moved." Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out toward one another, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Those words from Ezekiel flash like lightning in your mind as the cloud descends on you. This is the cloud that radiates God's glory and splendor and yet veils him enough that men may see it and live. Maybe. And the voice comes from the cloud. The voice that splits rocks apart and moves mountains. The voice that shouts stars into being from nothing. The voice that sounds like a great waterfall. The voice that sounds like thunder, awesome and majestic, shaking the earth so that you feel it speaking. The voice so terrifying and wonderful at the same time that you think it will kill you from joy and fear. The voice of God smites you flat on your face as the terrible glorious cloud of His presence envelops you. And He says, this is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Knowing not if you are dead or alive, you shake like a leaf on the ground. Silence. Stillness. Terror. Time passes. A touch on your shoulder. A familiar voice speaking. The voice of Jesus. Don't be afraid. Get up. Trembling, you look up. No cloud of God, no Moses, no Elijah. There's only Jesus. I want to ask you guys a question. Would that experience change your life? I think it's safe to say that it would. That event has become known as the transfiguration. What does transfiguration mean? Interestingly enough, I think you'll understand it better if I give you the Greek word, 
than our English word there. The Greek word is metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis. It, it simply means to be changed, to be uh, transformed or transfigured, hence the word transfiguration that we get. So what actually happened to Jesus? Um, I'm not going to try to tell you scientifically. I'm not sure if I can say that. But I think we can say that the disciples got to see a little bit of Jesus' glory. As it were, it's like God pulled back the veil of Jesus' humanity for that little moment enough to allow the disciples to get a glimpse of Jesus' glory. It's a great event, obviously, but let me ask this question. What did it mean? Why did it happen? To answer those questions, let me ask a prior question I think will help us, and that is this question. For whose benefit did the transfiguration happen? Was it for Jesus' benefit? I say yes, partly. Moses and Elijah knew the divine plan, would have supported it and encouraged Jesus in it. They came talking to whom? To Jesus. In Luke's account of the story, he fills us in on a couple of more details. Look at Luke 9, 30 and 31. He says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Apparently, Moses and Elijah already know Jesus. This is pretty cool stuff, right? And though the disciples are quaking in fear, Moses and Elijah are just fine. They've already been changed so they can handle the trauma of glory. They're speaking with Jesus as friends. I don't know what all to say about this, but I do know that Moses and Elijah could in some measure relate to Jesus in his humanity. Think of those two men in their ministry on earth. Both of those guys received death threats. Both of them knew what it was like to be under intense pressure. I don't know what all they talked about. Luke just gives us this little detail about the general nature of their conversation. Don't know how long it lasted. But part of the purpose of the transfiguration appears to be for Jesus. But if it was all for Jesus' benefit, then I ask, why were the disciples there? And why didn't it happen while they were sleeping? And to whom did the voice of God speak? To the disciples. To them, God had three sentences to say, which I think reveal his purpose for the transfiguration the first two sentences, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. You guys, that's confirmation. This is my son. Remember just a few days earlier, down at the bottom of the mountain, who do you say that I am? Peter answers for them all, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Got that right? Yes, this is my son whom I love. And then what happened? Jesus began to tell him his plan. Go to Jerusalem. How did Peter take that? Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He didn't like that plan. 
This is confirmation. The voice of God the Father. This is my Son whom I love. Yes, you got it right. With Him I am well pleased. He's doing what I want here on earth. He's fulfilling my plan. I love Him. This is my Son and I approve of what He's doing. Carrying out the plan exactly. And then the last sentence. Listen to him. I really, really wish my voice could thunder right now. That it could shake this building. So much so that we would all be flat on the ground, right? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to hear? But what did God say to them? Listen to him. What is God saying? Pay attention. Accept what he says. Don't argue. He's speaking the truth. Obey him. Listen to him. What impact do you suppose this event had on the lives of those three disciples? I think it had to be unforgettable. It's the kind of experience you remember every day for the rest of your life. Do you have those days in your life? I bet you do. December 26, 1993 was the day that my dad suffered an aortic dissection and then massive stroke and changed that forever. I won't forget that day. Uh, Labor Day 2002, I was on a mountain peak down in the Gallatin Range on one knee. said, Andrea, will you marry me? She said, with all my heart, yes. You don't forget that day. Uh, February 20th, 2007, woke up in the middle of the night to the phone call. Your heart starts beating fast when the phone rings at 2 in the morning, right? And it was the 911 dispatch saying you need to get over to your parents' house right away. It was the night my dad went home to be with Jesus. And I got there just as the ambulance did. And my mom met me at the door and just fell into my arms crying. And she said, he's gone. September 6, 2013 was opening day of bow season. And I was planning to go out. All my clothes were laid out. Everything was ready, and I woke up early that morning in intense pain and ended up in emergency intestinal surgery. I almost died that day. Those are days that change your life. They're days that you don't forget. You have those days, too. This is one of those days for those disciples. I believe that changed their lives forever. Here's what Peter wrote years later. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. He didn't forget changed his life. So this event happened for Jesus. This event happened for the disciples. But why did God see to it that this event was recorded in the Bible? Because I believe there's something also here for us, a purpose that God wanted us to gain. I believe he gave it to us because we too need a rock-solid confidence in who Jesus is, the reality of that, 
Peter, James, and John had just made that confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They knew who Jesus was, yet years later, it's this event that Peter looks back and writes about. It was confirmation. And Peter writes as an eyewitness for those of us who weren't there. And in case that you're feeling a little mopey right now, because you didn't get to be there and you didn't get to see that and you've never had an experience like that experience. God's never shook you and the ground and everything around you. I want to tell you that you're in good company. Nine of the 12 apostles didn't get to see it either. Okay, God doesn't give this kind of experience to everybody. Why did he give it to those three? I don't even know for sure all of the answer to that, but I do have a hunch, and I think I'm pretty close in a guess. I believe God gave that experience to those three because it's Peter, James, and John who are going to become the quote-unquote pillars of the church. And they needed to be shaken to their cores because when they're the pillars of the church and Jesus has ascended to heaven... They need to be clear about one thing. Guys, when you're the pillars of the church, you need to remember who's the head. You can't get a big head and think that you know the right way to go and that you got it from here and that you can handle everything that comes your way. <clears throat> they needed to listen to him and have that so transform them from the core out that that would be their primary first response. And I believe that as you read the opening chapters of the book of Acts, that's exactly what we see them doing over and over and over again, looking to Jesus, praying, Lord, what do you want us to do? What next? How now? Seeing Jesus at work. I want you to think about what's going on here, guys. This is just six to nine months before the crucifixion. Jesus is bringing his earthly ministry towards a close, toward the appointed destination of the cross and the resurrection, and he's going to propel them out to make disciples in the whole world. And Peter has just tried to take him aside and rebuke him for that plan. And God the Father steps in here and shakes these guys to their core, and he says, you guys listen to him. I think that'd be wise advice for us. Do you? <laughs> Here we are in the church. Here you are preparing for leadership in the church, wherever God brings you. Who's the head? We listen to him. The world wants to tell you that you should pursue your personal happiness. Jesus tells you that the most important thing in your life is not necessarily your personal happiness, but your personal holiness. Who are you going to listen to? The world wants to tell you that all truth is relative. Whatever you want to believe is right, so long as you believe it sincerely, right for you. Jesus says, my word is truth. Friends, listen to him. 
The world wants to tell you to get the best job you can, to earn the most money you can, to have the best career you can, to get the most stuff you can, to have the best retirement you can. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. Listen to him. The world says, follow your dreams. Jesus says, follow me. Listen to him. We want to be disciples of Jesus? Then we must follow him. That's what he said right down there on the bottom of the mountain. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Who's anyone? We are. If anyone else is, we are. If we want to follow Jesus, then we must follow him, listen to him. If we want to make disciples of Jesus, we must lead people to settle once and for all the question of who's in charge. Follow Jesus. Listen to him. Let's pray together. Lord, would you drive that lesson deep in us? Let us be those who listen to you, who follow you without question, without challenge, without contradiction. And let us be those who lead others to follow you by our words, by our example, by the intentional investment that we make in people's lives. Help us to do that today, tomorrow, through Thanksgiving break, through the semester, through the year, and on into the rest of our lives. Father, we thank you for those words that were given to the disciples and to us. We want to obey.